Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. All right, well, I want to welcome everyone here in the room and everybody watching online as well. You know, last night I did spend time with the Holcomb family. Uh, Our family, the Holcombs, are very close. And uh, needless to say, it was a long night. I'm a bit tired this morning. But as I thought about this message and presenting this message, I thought, you know, do I tone it down? Do I change what I would do? And I I could hear Joel's voice in my head saying, don't you dare. (laughs) Don't you dare. You get up there. You preach the word like you normally do. You smile. You laugh. You enjoy it. That's the way you'll honor me. And so I'd like all of us to honor Joel this morning by kind of shifting our minds. Can we do that? Amen. All right. We can make that happen. I can make that happen. Appreciate your support. So we are in a new series called Curveball. And what we're doing is we're taking a look at surprising encounters that people had with Jesus. You know, Jesus always seemed to leave people with this sense of shock and awe, which to me tells me that we often misunderstand the character of God. You see, Jesus is God personified. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through these stories from the Gospels to better grasp the nature of God. And today we're going to begin over in John chapter 8. And I'm going to read the whole story to you up front here. It goes like this. At dawn, he, that would be Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, today's message is going to be a message for everybody who's ever done anything wrong or ever felt guilty, okay? Either one. You know, if you do wrong things and you don't feel guilty, that's called being a psychopath. So this would be a good message for you out there, all right? If you feel guilty all the time but you're not doing wrong things, that's being neurotic, okay? Maybe a few of those, I don't know. If you do wrong things and you feel guilty, that's just regular old sin, and you're in the right place, okay? We are imperfect people around here. Now, if you never do anything wrong and you never feel guilty, then you may be a Baptist in the wrong church. I I don't know. But uh, 
You might know somebody who needs this. I'm kidding, okay? Some of the biggest sinners I know are, okay, never mind. Anyhow. For all have sinned. I can pick on Baptist because I was in the Baptist church for a while. All right, so this is a story, people, about law, judgment, guilt, and mercy. It's a story about an individual who's done something terrible and feels horrible regret and shame, and another group of people who have done something equally terrible, but they feel no guilt at all. They can't see the rot in their own souls. And then finally, it's a story about Jesus. Now, I kind of thought through this story, putting myself in in her place and, and trying to think through how this went down. This woman had to have asked herself, how did I end up here? Okay, we know she was married because the Old Testament law mentioned specifically here deals with married women. So at one time, that means she was a young bride with hopes and dreams about her marriage. You know, about a husband who loved her, about praying and worshiping with him in the temple, about raising a family together. But somehow, things didn't turn out the way she planned. She was disappointed in her marriage. And maybe it was her husband, maybe it was her, probably it was some of both. But somewhere along the line, she meets another man, and he seems to notice her, seems to listen to her, seems to care. And at first, it was all quite innocent. That's how these things go, right, at first. But somewhere along the way, one day, you know, they crossed a line. You know, maybe it was a touch that lingered too long, a shared look that implied a kind of illicit promise. Maybe she didn't even know when that moment happened. I think the evil one likes to keep those moments kind of dark and hazy, so we're not even aware of what we're choosing, but she chose. And then she crossed another line, I'm sure, and another line until eventually it was a full-blown affair. And here's the deal. Unchecked sin always leads to more sin. So she used to be a truthful person, and now she finds herself lying to her husband all the time. And probably the first time she slept with this man, when she went to the synagogue afterwards and she heard the word of God, the scriptures read, she felt this enormous guilt going on inside of her. And she was sure everybody could tell she was guilty. She thought they'd all find out. She thought God would strike her dead with a bolt of lightning. And so she vows to God never to see this man again, but nobody finds out. Like there is no lightning. God does nothing. Heaven is silent. And so after a while, she's able to go to the synagogue and hardly even think about her affair. See, what happened to her is what happens to each and every one of us. Over time, we grow comfortable with our sin, don't we? We get comfortable in our sin. And I'm sure every once in a while, she woke up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, but eventually it would pass. And she wasn't even aware of what was going on, what was happening to her heart until this moment right here. I mean, she had been with this man, we don't know how many times before, and and nothing happened. But this time, something happens, right? The door swings open. There have been men outside watching and waiting. They enter the room. They seize her. And I'm sure she screams. She cries for mercy, right? She would do anything to be able to go back to that moment when she first crossed the line. But she can't. You can never go back. And they wrap her up in her sheets, and they lead her away. And suddenly, this vague haze she's been living in for so long is ripped away. As happened at the fall, her eyes are open. She sees her nakedness. She feels ashamed. She would give anything just to be able to go somewhere and hide, but she can't. And I imagine in that moment, suddenly she realized how she got here. She chose this. She chose this. Now, that's not all there is to it. She was hurt. She was wounded. She had needs that went unmet. But she was not just a victim. 
Right? She had made a thousand little choices that inevitably led to this moment. Unless we get too caught up in just this story here, I want to pause in this story because I know there are lots of people here in this room who are wrestling with some kind of sin right now. We need to begin to be honest about that. And maybe it's this particular sin, but you know what? <laughs> a lot of times churches love to pick on this. And this is not a message about adultery or sexual immorality. Not really. No, it's broader than that. A lot of times churches love to pick on this sin, but as we'll see in just a moment, that's not even the biggest sin going on in this story. So I want to challenge us all to think for a minute. What is it for you? What do you wrestle with? Is it anger? Pride? Critical spirit? Envy? Jealousy? Cheating? And, and, and maybe you're still so good at it that, that nobody knows, like not even the person next to you. You've convinced yourself that nobody's going to find out. And some of you, maybe you're starting to cross a line and you know it. Right? You're starting to cross that line. And the only question is, how far are you going to go? Well, today, I want to challenge you to put a stop to it, whatever it is. And I was thinking about this. Increasingly, these days, both men and women are struggling with addictive sexual behavior. It's a real issue in our culture. And maybe you're on a business trip recently, you're in a hotel room all by yourself, and you went to a website you shouldn't have, you saw a movie you shouldn't have, and you feel guilt about that. And even as I'm talking about right now, you're, you're feeling guilty. And maybe you've said to yourself, I'm going to quit a thousand times. You promised God you're going to quit. But each time you break that promise and something happens to your heart. And I would say to you that the first step to getting healing, the first step to growing spiritually is we need to be courageous enough to speak, right, to talk about our sin, to call it out in our lives. And so what we're going to do here today is we're going to have a little mass confession in this room, all right? And I'm not going to do this just related to sexual sin. That would be way too awkward, okay? So we're going to broaden this. We can do this. How many of you have ever wrestled with a bad habit or any sin of any kind? Would you just raise your hand up really high? Okay, keep it up. All right, look around the room, all right? Somebody doesn't have their hand up. They're a psychopath, right? They need this message. We talked about them. Now, here's the key question, though. This is the question I really want to get after. For those of you who have wrestled with a sin, thanks for that honesty, for those of you who have wrestled with that kind of sin, how many of you found that it just spontaneously went away one day all by itself, okay? You see, that's rarely the case, is it? isn't it? You see, as a general rule, I think these habits, they get embedded in our lives, and they don't just go away spontaneously. In fact, not only that, as they grow in strength, just deciding by sheer willpower that you're going to change, it's not sufficient either. At that point, you're going to need some help. You're going to have to bring it into the light. You're going to have to be honest with yourself, confess it to God, maybe confess it to a Christian brother or sister, someone you love, someone you trust, maybe even a Christian counselor. In fact, as these problems get really deep, you're going to need some support, some accountability. It's like, I can't do this by myself. And that's why we have to be a part of community to deal with this kind of brokenness. But you know what, people? You have to choose this. You have to choose that hopefully before it's too late, before it gets too far. Okay, so let's go back to the story here. There's another reason that this woman is here. There's another set of characters in this story. And again, you need to picture the setting. In verse 2, it says that Jesus sat down to teach them. Now, this is really important because in that day, the way a rabbi indicated and signaled that the formal teaching time had begun is he would sit down. 
Like in our day, the teacher stands up and everybody sits down. In that day, the teacher sat down. And that way they could go on talking for hours and hours and hours and never grow tired. Like it was a wonderful arrangement, right? It's in the Bible. You should try that, right? The point John wants to make here, the reason he makes this comment, is he wants us to know this is not a private conversation to try to come up with a constructive action plan in a confidential setting. Now, Jesus is in the midst of teaching her, formal teaching time, and these men drag this woman in here. These men are more than willing to publicly humiliate this woman because, frankly, it's Jesus they're after. Teacher, they say, as if they wanted to honor him. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act. Now, in the Old Testament, the law was very clear about what was required to be caught in the act. Circumstantial evidence didn't cut it. One witness, not enough. Deuteronomy 19 says that a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That means that at least two, maybe more of these men had to be hanging out around her house, had to be watching through her window. And things haven't changed all that much over the last 2,000 years, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but in order for adultery to occur, there have to be at least two parties involved, right, two individuals. And she's here by herself. Where's the guy in this story? Like sleeping in, reading the paper, right? Did he slip out the back when the intruders alerted the camels and they barked? I don't know, right? I mean, why isn't he there? I'll tell you why. It's because these religious leaders weren't really concerned about justice at all. Leviticus 20.10 says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. See, it's a classic double standard. This woman was meaningless to them. She was an object, a pawn, bait to catch a bigger fish. And she was well-chosen bait, too, because Jesus had a reputation for being a champion of women. And so they're sitting here, they're thinking, we have Jesus now. I mean, if he shows mercy to this woman, we'll get him for being soft on the law. And if he says, stone her, (laughs) the crowds will never forgive him. Besides, the Romans had forbidden the Jews from executing anyone. So if he says stoner and they do, Jesus would be in serious trouble with the Romans. So here's this woman trembling with guilt, wishing she could just die, believing she's about to, and they could care less about her. The only thing they can think is we have Jesus now. And so they stand there. They've appointed themselves as judge and jury. They stand there with stones in their hands just waiting for the word. But the curveball Jesus is about to throw them, they didn't see coming, not at all. And before we go on here, I want to say, before we judge them too quickly, I want to ask all of us a question. Have you ever had a stone in your hand? Think about this. You need to think about this. Have you ever had a stone in your hand? You know, a strange thing can happen to a heart that was once tender. I actually wondered for these teachers of the law, when they first signed up as young men, to devote their lives to service to God. I wonder if their hearts were soft. I wonder if they were motivated by love toward God and other people at the beginning. But then over time, something happened. Maybe all their learning of Scripture filled them up with pride. Or or it could be, possibly, I, I don't know, that maybe all their efforts at righteousness, obedience, 
that filled them up with disdain for those who were less devoted, right? Or maybe all of their giftedness filled them with impatience, contempt for those who were weaker. Until one day, they're as enslaved by a cold heart as any addict ever has been by a drug. I'm telling you, what's so dangerous about pride and arrogance and judgmentalism and moral superiority is that when they get a hold of you, you don't see the truth about yourself. And you go through life as if it were a courtroom and you're the jury. You go through life with stones in your hands. Judgmental thoughts, superior attitudes, impatient words, little love. You know, I wonder about this a whole, whole lot. I actually wonder if this is not the greatest sin in the church today. I wonder about that. I wonder if this is not the single greatest reason why people are leaving the church in droves today, because they say it is. And I wonder if it's not the single greatest reason why people outside the church want nothing to do with the church. See, I've been around the church for a long, long time. I love, love, love the church. But I wonder, why do churches produce so many stone throwers? I mean, for some reason, in so many churches, so many people, not all, they're just kind of cold. And that's not the whole truth about them, but it's part of the truth. They don't really seem to laugh or enjoy life. They have little capacity for love or embracing folks or compassion or forgiveness. At times, it seems the only thing they enjoy is passing judgment on the spiritual inferiority of others. So somebody's kid goes a little wild, and they pick up a stone. Somebody's marriage isn't working. They pick up a stone. The worship director chooses the wrong kind of song or sings it too loudly, right? They pick up a stone. Somebody crosses a line, violates a code, dresses the wrong way, word spreads, people pick up stones. That's the sad truth about too many Christians and too many churches. And the truth is, although they don't know it about themselves, gathering stones energizes them. They enjoy gathering stones. And let me say this, lest we get too far removed from those people, we do this at times too. Now, there's somebody at work that you're jealous of, they've gone farther than you, and you hear there's something that might be bad about that person, they might fall while you're left standing, and you're tempted to pick up a stone. Anyway, so there they stand, these lovers of God, stones in their hands. And there's this woman there trembling, waiting to die, her jury standing there with those stones. But then there's this strange man, this other guy in the story, Jesus. And they asked Jesus this question, what do you say? And Jesus is going to throw a curveball here. What did he do first thing? Well, he bent down to the ground and just started writing in the dirt. Boy, this bothers them. This is odd behavior, okay? It kind of reminds me of the old detective character on TV, Frank Columbo. Anybody here remember Lieutenant Columbo? Let me see your hands. Okay. A few more at Sun City remember him, but I don't know why. Yeah, I I loved Columbo. It was classic. But the thing about Columbo is you were never really sure if he was paying any attention. Is he just clueless here? Jesus, he's kind of doing the Columbo thing here. He doesn't seem to be paying any attention at all. And we know this is irritating them because the text doesn't say they questioned him. It says they kept on questioning him. He's blowing them off, blowing them off, blowing it off. 
But they kept boom, 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 boom. And finally, it says Jesus stood up. You know, General George S. Patton Jr. once said, never give a command in a sitting position unless you're on a horse or on top of a tank. Yeah. And here comes another curveball. Jesus says, go ahead, stoner. And that's what the law says, right? Oh, 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 but just one rule. Let the guy here without sin in this matter go first. And then he kneels back down to the ground, starts writing again. Now, that's a fascinating detail in the text, and I know people always want to know, what did he write? Come on, tell me, Pastor Brian, what did he write? I've read a thousand commentaries on this. Nobody knows for sure. Right, maybe he wrote Bible verses like the ones we're taking a look at today that were pertinent to this. Some people think, well, he wrote the sins of all the people there and drew little arrows toward them. Maybe he just wrote, Jesus was here. Have a great day. <laughs> I don't know. You know, rabbis would do this, though. I mean, in ancient times, think about it. There was no other way to visually illustrate. Right? There were no flip charts, no PowerPoint, no, no pro presenter, uh, no whiteboards, right? None of that. I mean, the only technology available to teachers would be to write on the ground. So we don't know what Jesus wrote, but we do know this. Jesus' brilliant response here broke the dilemma. And yet at the same time, upheld Jewish morality because he never said what she did was right. He never compromised the truth. The Cliff Notes version here of what Jesus does is he says, you cannot condemn her, and I will not condemn her. It's not why I'm here. Capable? Oh, yeah. Willing? Now, we have to ask this question. When Jesus said, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her, what exactly did he mean? Did he mean that if you have any sin in your life, then you're never qualified to judge another person? Well, if that was the case, then a lot of the Old Testament law would just be meaningless, right? I mean, even 2,000 years later, we know there's no perfect person in this room, no one without sin in this room. If I was to say to you, you can stay here this morning if you don't have any sin, but if you've ever sinned, you've got to leave. Okay, I would be the only person in here. That would be sad. So that wouldn't be good. No. Now, people, there's a reason why no one even picked up so much as a pebble here. And it goes a lot, lot deeper than that. You see, there were some very specific regulations about stoning people in the Old Testament that these religious leaders were conveniently neglecting. Let me give you a little side lesson in Old Testament law here. First of all, the witnesses to the crime had to be the first, the first to throw a stone. Deuteronomy 17.7 says, the hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death and then the hands of all the people. So whoever witnessed the adultery, which again, correct me if I'm wrong, would be pretty tough to do unless it was a setup, some kind of a trap. But those eyewitnesses had to throw the first stone. And not just that, they had to be 100% sure and 100% innocent in the matter. Listen to the rest of the story, the rest of the Old Testament law. This is Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 19. It says, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness malicious, someone with malice, takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, 
The two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priest and the judge who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. Ooh. See, according to God, the eyewitness better not have a malicious motive going on. They better not be accusing someone for their own gain. They had to be 100% innocent to stone that woman. And by virtue of the fact that the man was let off scot-free, that was not the case. People, that was the sin Jesus was alluding to here. But it gets even better than that. Because the Bible says what? If you lie, you die. Look back at verse 18. If the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. Boy, these accusers were a gnat's eyelash away from condemning themselves to death. So those hot-headed Pharisees suddenly felt the blood drain from their face. They were forced to come to grips with their own guilt. And I would say that if we ever have the audacity to judge another person, we better judge ourselves first. The truth about these guys was exposed. They were not champions for God. They were not fighters for morality. They were a cold-hearted, arrogant little circle of stone throwers. And the Bible says one by one, they began to go away. The older ones first, because they probably clued in to this law where Jesus was going, until no one was left. Now, if I was there, man, I would have been tempted to make a firm point like to make eye contact with those guys who wanted to kill this lady. Before people even left, I would have been going, hey, Joseph, yeah, you in the back. And we're talking about sin here. Yours has been unbelievable lately, hasn't it? Right? Hey, where's everybody going? But Jesus doesn't do that. Here's my question. Does anyone here have a stone they need to drop today? You know, Matthew 7, 1 says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And maybe you came in here today carrying a stone. Maybe it's a stone against your mom. It's your dad. Maybe it's an ex-spouse, a boss, co-worker, someone who really hurt you. And maybe you've been carrying around for so long, you don't even remember life without it, but your heart's getting a little colder each and every day. So maybe today is that day when you can just drop that stone. And I don't know what it'll take for you. Maybe dropping that stone will require some action that's going to cost you. Like if you've gossiped against someone and you need to go to that person that you gossiped about or gossiped to, ask for forgiveness, apologize, set things right. Or if you think about it, you've got this hard heart towards someone, maybe you go and just do an act of service for that person. That can soften your heart. Don't tell anybody about it. Just go do that. If you've been behaving badly towards someone, you know it. Maybe you need to go to that person and just ask for forgiveness. Well, there is no room in Jesus' community for stone throwers. We're all too broken. Too broken. We need to be a family, not a courtroom. So finally, in verse 9, it's just Jesus, this woman, and a whole bunch of stones lying on the ground. The throwers are gone. The stones are there. Now, of course, this woman is wondering what's going to happen next, right? Because Jesus could still be the stone thrower. He is without sin. He has that right. But Jesus does a beautiful thing. Jesus says, where are they? Where are they? In other words, is there no one here without sin in this matter? 
And what Jesus is really saying is this, you know what? <laughs> You're no different, you and they, not really. You know, they're a bunch of broken sinners, and you're a broken sinner. Despite their spiritual superiority, you're all in the same boat. Is no one left, Jesus says. No one, sir, she replies. Hmm. And by the way, in the Greek, that word sir is often translated as Lord. No one, Lord. Could it be that this is the moment she acknowledges Jesus as her Savior, who he is in this beautiful moment? And Jesus' response, then neither do I condemn you. How about a do-over? How about you get a clean slate, completely forgiven? How about you leave that old sinful woman behind and become a new creation? People, this story is so awesome. You know why? Because this story encapsulates the gospel. At the beginning of this encounter, she was going to die. But Jesus stood between her and the crowd, the means of that death. Because Jesus stopped them, she was saved. Now, they want Jesus dead, and he would die. In fact, she would live because he would die for her. That's the gospel message right there that the offer of forgiveness and eternal life comes to us freely. Jesus says, will you trust in me? I died for your sins. I want to take away your sin. As we wrap up this story, Jesus has one more thing to say. And again, this is kind of another Columbo moment. Just, just one more thing right? before you go. Just one, one more thing. And I bet these words stuck with her until the day she died. Remember what he said, go and sin no more. Leave that old self behind. Stop hurting yourself with that lifestyle. People, do you see how grace is what motivates us to change? Not law, not judgment, not guilt, not shame. Grace motivates us to change. And she would have a long, painful road ahead, right? She's got to go back to her lover and say, it's done. We're through. She's got to go back and face her husband, ask for forgiveness. No guarantees there. Maybe he'll forgive her. Maybe not. And we don't know what happened with any of that stuff. But what we do know is from that day forward, she would never be alone. From that day forward, she would have a friend who would always be with her, a friend who would give his life for her. And her friend can be your friend. See, the truth about you is that Jesus, people, loves you so much that your death became his death so that his life might become your life. Can we drop the stones? Let's drop the stones. Pray with me. Lord, two questions we need to wrestle with as we leave. What's the sin I need to forsake? There's not a perfect person in this room. We've got something we wrestle with. And by your Holy Spirit right now, I pray that you would just convict us, each and every one of us. What is it? Now, we don't want to just keep going down that road where eventually the wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. And that's not just going to be necessarily physical death. It could be spiritual death, relational death, separation 
in some way from what is good. So God, help us to acknowledge that, to confess that, to get help from others if we need it, and to lean on you to overcome that. And then God, the other question we've got to ask is, what's the stone that I need to drop? Lord, so many things can make us angry and make us judgmental, critical. So many things can hurt us, and, and maybe we feel like we have a right, and in some ways, from a justice standpoint, we can feel like, yeah, that, that's so true. But you've asked us to drop those stones. Just as you've forgiven us, we're to forgive others. So God, help us to identify that as well. And Lord, we need your power, your Holy Spirit in this whole process. So God, help us. Help us to walk in your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a wonderful day in the Lord.